Section number 20 of the Centurions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Centurions by Biagi. Chapter 17 The heat was intense. It was impossible to remain in my rooms, and my nerves were at such tension that I decided to hunt up Sachs for relaxation. I knew I would find him awake and busy. He always worked at night, declaring the brain was clear, more vigorous during the dark hours, and that all great ideas had been figured out by candlelight. I softly stepped into the hall. The dim lights flickered in a slight draught. All seemed silent. Yet distinctly a low murmur of voices reached me. I hurried down the broad vista of shining stairs. The bronze entrance stood wide as always. There were no sentinels in this wondrous land of harmony. As I neared the grand vestibule, the voices raised aloud, discordant in angry dispute, and I paused in astonishment. A brilliant light suddenly flared from the audience, or throne room, where royal magnificence defied comparison. A sultry silence, followed by the rustling of silks, warned me I had barely time to conceal myself behind the huge fluted column which supported the dome. When a door swung wide and Alpha Centauri stepped out, her bearing that of a queen, a disdainful, arrogant queen. By her side was the Vespa King, wild with rage. In the rear Centauri stood, arms uplifted in dismay and bewilderment. At least meet Prince Benlil, snorted the angry king, trying to detain her. Alpha gazed scornfully upon him. I do not refuse to meet the prince, she answered, but shall be absent from center indefinitely. However, when I return, we'll give him an audience. Bah, scoffed the king, unable to control his fury. Leave the veneer for publicity. We are alone. Be natural. You must meet my son, and cold, superior as you think you are, you will... Quickly she raised her hand, commanding silence. Useless, she told him. You have my decision. I am the priestess of the sun, and shall never wed. She walked slowly away. The king watched her with bulging eyes, too furious for speech. Suddenly she turned and flashed him a brilliant smile. My greetings to Prince Benlil. Should he ever visit Centaur, a royal welcome awaits him. She courtesied deeply in mockery. The interview was at an end. The king stamped with rage and would have followed her, but Centauri remonstrated and drew him into the room, gently closing the door. Alpha paused, shrugged her shoulders, and glanced disdainfully at the closed door. The prince of the Vespa belt. Oof, she muttered. Then she flung her arms high and whispered in adoration. I am true, faithful, yours entirely. Her eyes closed in passionate ecstasy, a smile of exquisite joy stole over the lovely features, as in a dream she proceeded on her way. I watched till she passed from view. She had learned the lesson well. An apt pupil who had not been taught, who had never forgotten. Remembrance had tarnished. A slight pressure upon the fabulous spring and the sensitive wires vibrated with rejuvenated vigor. Array! Return to your belt, O Vespa King. Sick. 
Accosting the first pedestrian, I inquired the way to Professor Sachs' library. Following directions, I soon reached Sachs' dwelling, which was brilliantly lit from top to bottom. The house seemed all frontage, wide, flat, and very shallow. I touched a conspicuous knob, the door startled me, as, clanging violently, it slid up. There stood Sachs at the far end of the hall waiting for the intruder, but seeing me, he shouted welcome. Thought you intended to stay for good with Saunders, he told me after the greeting. What consumed the time? Surely not Saunders. Never mind, tell it to me later. The Centaurians do things in style. My workshop is a great improvement upon the old one, but, confidentially, Virgilius, give me the attic every time. There the ideas came without wasting hours thinking them up. This luxury inspires yarns. I don't see how these people ever made such rapid headway. And Sachs was right. The place resembled a lady's boudoir. All silken cushions, soft carpets, and rainbow tints. But it's pleasant to rest here when I'm tired, he continued. I don't object to the frippery. It's all in a lifetime. The rear is serious enough. And Bridge is more comfortable, eh, Sachs? I nudged him. No comparison, my boy, he replied. I'm done with petticoats. A man can't do anything in them but try to look pretty. No wonder women spend most of their lives primping. It's the petticoats. I found a tailor who knows his business. Imagine us returning to our own land rigged up in the sort of thing you've got on. Yes, sir. I feel like Saxlander now. Sheldon's done the same thing. Says the climate of the Oxus is too arctic for tights. I decided to don trousers again. Yes, Sax advised. Bundle the drapery out. It makes you look like the bearded lady. Now for the propeller. The new machine is a great improvement upon the old one. The defects of the first are remedied in the second. Don't advertise it. He showed me two or three tiny wheels, several great long screws and rivets, and two gigantic pieces of filigree work cast in glittering metal. Pure gold, he informed me cast in crystal molds over a furnace of electricity. It took me several days planning and figuring for the molds, yet by George, the factory delivered them in a few hours. That's rapid work for you. Molds should always be of crystal. But the gold, I interrupted, is the whole machine to be cast in gold? Of course. What of it? he cried. It's manufactured by wholesale and on the market like lumber. Look here. He opened the adjoining room and showed me the gold stacked up in blocks ready for use. Is it absolutely pure? I asked. Well, he replied, it stood every test I've made upon it. Beyond doubt it's the same article that's so scarce on our side. I held out for steel, but the durability of gold was pointed out, and it was explained the propeller would be in the museum for all time, and gold was the metal. I wouldn't argue with them. They are going to publish books with exquisite illustrations, the date and details of when Poto Lili first sighted us in the car. Little guidebooks will be issued, explaining all about the strange little steel car and gold propeller presented to the people of Centauri by the renowned Professor Saxlinger. Renowned Saxlinger sounds first rate. Ahem. Now look at this. He opened a small box stuffed with silk floss and and took out a huge diamond, the size and shape of a pecan, and of dazzling brilliancy. Or the propeller, he explained. A perfect gem without a flaw, yet not genuine. Yes, Virgilius, the Centaurians have discovered the secret. 
This stone is as perfect as any ever taken from the mines. Before returning home, I shall master the intricate combination of gold blocks and diamonds. Nearly all the genuine gems of Centauri have been placed in the museum. The manufactured article is the standard. Man's ingenuity is rated invaluable. Notice the ruby. It contains a fire never seen in the most famous gems of our world. But the stone that defies penetration is the emerald. It guards its secret well and is very rare. Many have attempted to produce the stone and turned out fairly good imitations, but imitation was failure. A perfect emerald must be produced. Half a century ago, a noted scientist delved into the mystery of the emerald. In his efforts to get ahead of competitors, he experimented upon the sacred emerald loaned to him from the museum and actually reduced it to liquid. Old Centauri was sent for and found the scientist frantically trying to analyze the liquid, under the impression it would shortly petrify again, but, to the amazement of both, the strange greenish liquid dwindled and evaporated. That ended the emerald problem with the scientist. He succumbed to an ailment unknown to physicians, and it is believed he inhaled the emerald. Scientists declare the fatal incident analyzed the emerald. The gem is composed of congealed poisonous gases petrified. The emerald man became famous because he came nearer solving the green mystery, but his secret died with him. When pressed to divulge, he replied, My experiment failed. Had I produced the perfect stone, the knowledge would have been free to all. I produced nothing and lost the emerald, as I feared I would. Failures are enervating, should remain obscure. The time in this sphere is too short to ponder over them. Sachs told me many curious things about the Centaurians and their wonderful discoveries. We talked till daybreak. He made me promise to visit him daily and be useful, but it was several months before Sachs and I met again. I returned to the palace and wandered in the gardens, waiting impatiently for the summons from Alpha Centauri. But I was disappointed. Though I sent many messages, she refused to see me that day and, womanlike, gave no reasons. I idled the glorious morning away in the gardens, then towards noon started for the city in quest of Sax's intelligent tailor. The man seemed to regard my order as an honor, and to my request promised to give it his personal attention and I would have the garments as early as I desired. He informed me the costume was ancient, but occasionally seen on the stage, and there was a general impression the mountaineers of the Vespa belt still wore it. He took my measure and again promised to accommodate me at the earliest possible moment. I decided the next time Alpha and I met she would behold a gentleman of the period of my world. Strolling leisurely about the city, pondering upon the advisability of visiting Saks again, I suddenly sighted a tall, majestic building whose portal stood wide with a gigantic statue of the angel genius, smiling a welcome. It was the Salon, and remembering the artistic fisherman of Barabella, I entered the gallery with much curiosity. I remained till sundown. The fisherman's work was above and beyond anything in the gallery, not for merit, but originality. He aimed at the mysterious, the startling, and charmed the imagination. An artist who daringly flings upon the world a picture of dull sky and half-obscured moon is a master. Originality is the child of imagination. Fame, the blossom. There were many clever artists in this strange land, possibly more clever than the extraordinary fishermen, but their work lacked individuality and paled into insignificance before the wild combination of vivid, gaudy shades blended by the greatest artist in the world. But as I viewed the portrait of the beauty Isabella, 
my admiration for her husband's art dwindled considerably. In the pink and white, simpering portrait, the artist betrayed his lack of skill. He failed utterly to produce Adela's delicate archness and made her loveliness a type to compare with his strange ideal of pervertedness. A long panel canvas revealed the dark-browed, intense production posed impossibly statuesque. Deep, gloomy, intelligent eyes, the whole vivid with that which was lacking in the painted prettiness of Abella. It was a master show placing the two side by side, the one fair, smiling, shallow, the other dark, wintry, magnetic. The failure was obscure. The ideal charmed the eye and attention. I was wondering which type I admired when startled by the sudden flare of lights in the building, the signal of the setting sun, and instantly forgot all types but one and hurried away in happy anticipation. I found Mike greatly perturbed. He told me everyone in the palace had been thrown in great confusion by the tempestuous king of the Vespa Belt. Alva Centauri honors the traditions of her family, he informed me. She proclaims herself priestess of the sun and that her celestial duties do not include the unification of the white race. King Benliel departed at sundown. Friendly relations between the two countries are at an end. Centauri and his daughter escorted the wrathy king to his ship. In loud, excited tones, he told them the prince would visit Centaur. Greetings, Alpha replied. The people of Centaur will welcome the prince when honored by his presence. Her stateliness, serenity, superiority to the man before her, it was sacrilegious to dream of mating her with the son of such a barbarian. Mike waxed indignant. Centauri watched the departure of their royal visitor till the ship was out of sight, he continued. Then, seeing me near, the priestess of the sun beckoned and bade me tell you she would consult with you in the morning. I will not see her today at all, then, I cried. Mike shrugged his shoulders. She is closeted with her father, deep in discussion of important state matters, he told me. Will the prince visit the city? I foolishly asked. Without the least hesitancy, he replied, Certainly, Alpha must mate the last of our people. Prince Benlio may prove worthy. This was consoling. I dismissed him and, weary, disappointed, retired. My slumbers were disturbed with lurid visions of Prince Benlio, and one poppy seed more vivid than others roused me with heartache and I awoke moaning. The sun streamed into the room, a slanting flame seared straight across my eyes, but through the blur I saw Mike tiptoeing about with disapproving glances, fixed upon a heap of clothing fragrant with newness. He strenuously objected to the new clothing, but curious, and unable to assist me, keenly watched my preparations. When I stood complete before him, he turned me around admiringly. You look very well, he remarked, but appeared better yesterday. Nonsense, I retorted. I look better and feel more like myself now than since entering center. He smiled, bowing deeply. Alpha Centauri awaits you, he said. You are to be so informed, the moment of awakening. I pushed him aside, shaking my fist at his chuckle and hurried to meet the sweet woman who was certainly making life a very unhappy problem for me. She received me with a veiled glance and smiled tenderly as I raised her hand to my lips. I chided her for breaking her appointments. Ah, Virgilius, she replied. No plans could be perfected till the departure of wrathy King Benliel. I am not divine, and love begets selfishness. I will not sacrifice myself for the people. The Vespa Prince, Venice. 
We spent the entire day together. Over and over again she told me of her deep infatuation for him. Nothing. Poetically and passionately, she described the image of her dreams, and no man on earth could ever reach the perfections of the idol this girl had erected to worship. Then I learned of her plans. Alpha Centauri, for the first time in her life, was to leave Centaur and tour the world. A large party of friends had been invited to travel with her, and the government ship Centaur was placed at her disposal. I have frequently been urged to do this, she told me, advised that I should become familiar with the world I would someday rule. But I demurred. Science was more interesting. I lived a painfully narrow life. What a wonderfully different view you have created. Virgilius, I go in search of the god of my dreams. And the secret was out. Alpha Centauri would search for and, if possible, possess this man of her imagination and forever bring damnation upon her soul. What woman is happy with the individual she thinks her affinity? Suppose your search should prove futile, I maliciously suggested. That is impossible, she replied confidently. My love exists. I inquired if she would visit the Vespa belt. No, she answered quickly. My ideal could not be found among the Vespa people. But we shall sail low and slowly over the belt that you may see it. It will take about two days to sail from one point of the crescent to the other, and five days of stormy weather over the vast waters that separates the belt from this land. Altogether we shall be absent many months. Centauri does not accompany us. He is much interested in the daring exploits of your great friend, Sheldon, and will pass most of the time in the Oxus. And, Virgilius, we sail tomorrow evening at sundown. End of section number 20